I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to What Women Want with Amy Annette. Thank you so much for listening. How exciting that you're here. If you've listened to the show before, you'll know this is a comedy conversation show. Um, who thought of that? But it is where we talk about the misconceptions, misunderstandings and misogyny involved in being a woman. I'm so pleased to be sharing this conversation that I had with Emily Gordon and Monica Heisey talking about writing back in the past, aka 2020. Now, I could pretend that I'm releasing this because Monica's new Sky show, Smothered, great name, comes out on the 7th of December in the year of our Lord, the singer, of course, 2023, uh, aka next week. But that would be a bull-faced lie uh, that painted me out to be some sort of PR genius. <laughs> but I will delight in the neatness of it all. This is the recording where I can hear how delighted I am to be with these people. At one point, I think I just said, this is so nice in such a sincere way, and truly at such a bizarre time. I just had to take it out. But please know, it's in there, emotionally. I had also at that time, quote-unquote, discovered skincare. So uh, we do touch on that too, like two older sisters indulging me. We can have it all. So please, join me as we listen to Pass Me, talk with Emily Gordon and Monica Heisey about what women want is to write. So the show is called What Women Want and the idea is that we share personal experiences and things we've learned about being a woman and also just dissect what it means. The whole idea for me is that feminism is a critical way of looking at the world. So looking at like the everyday things we do through a feminist lens. Mostly it's just people being like, I'm tired. <laughs> Why does this keep happening to me? <laughs> I'm so tired. <laughs> um, and so I thought it would be interesting to talk to two writers. I think about what that means. But also if we just end up talking about, you know, our skincare routines, that's also fine. Have you heard of Kiehl's, guys? Do you know Vintner's Daughter? No. that's one. It's an oil I put on my face. It smells like a garden. Yeah. You have I love great it. skin as well. I, I do appreciate that. It wasn't fishing, but Vintner's Daughter will change your life. Yes. Highly expensive Change your life. Yes, I do think it. My two faves are super expensive, but enough people say it's worth it, or incredibly cheap, and it's like it actually is just as good as the expensive thing. I have a my couple two serums that I sort of like are my like party serums, and I mm. never feel guilty about how much I'm using because they were so cheap. And yeah, I just like goo my yeah. whole yeah. face. Good. Yeah. I feel like, especially when it comes to skincare, it's like the new mm. way to make women talk about beauty. And make them think that they've like it's scientific in some way, which makes it okay. Like I, I'm impressed by the way that capitalism is adapting to feminism. Sure. To make us consumerism as self care. Mm, Absolutely, yeah. I, I love it. Me too. <laughs> and I, I even love it ironically, and then that just translates to just pure enjoyment. Well, yes. this is the thing. I okay, this is going to sound like a brag, but it's just true. I interviewed Gloria Steinem once, Whoa. and she asked her about like a jeans advert that I saw that was it was like. Like a multicultural feminist fantasy, and I it was a video about empowering women, and then at the end it was like jeans. <laughs> and Gloria Steinem was like, "Well, when they've started pandering to you, you're probably winning." Mm. I don't know if I think that that's true, but I feel like I think you're right. I don't know. Are we recording? Yeah. I don't know. We, they pander to you, but also, like. You can only then feel good if you spend that money. Because mm. I, I, I agree with that. But then I'm like, I, I'm only worthy then if I spend money. Mm. It only is good for me if I'm able to spend the money on it. Yeah, and I don't know that the jeans 
like knowing that what women want to see is an empowering video. Mm. I don't think they're actually making women empowered in any real way in their lives. Like you probably still have to buy the plus size version of those jeans online. Only. And they might cost more money. Yeah. Because that's if you're big, big yeah. legs. Yeah. <laughs> it takes more fabric. Yeah. Just think about it. But that, that's interesting. Maybe two things may, I think about then it's like, one thing is you have to enjoy it with an element of like feminist critique that feels worthy but maybe a bit exhausting and we probably should engage with every piece of advertising with a certain amount of skepticism mm. but and obviously that's why like social media advertising is so pernicious because you're just like in your bed you're in at night yeah <laughs> not and thinking about things you're opting into it like i follow a bunch of homeware stores mm. accounts why mm. do i do that why do i do that mm. yeah mm. they're not I giving me anything. and now i want a, a fringe lamp more than i've wanted anything yes, in my life me too so that's interesting Aesthetic. whenever i because you did a great article recently monica segueing to the topic of the day <laughs> your article about headbands and being targeted specifically to buy a thing I've that is targeted so hugely pointless like you yeah. can't even like with at least like with skincare there's some like apparent element of like yeah. health that you're looking after and yet you know you were talking about how you bought two headbands and I here we three, are three three padded like trendy padded <laughs> oh, headbands. yeah those are really cute these days yeah they're so cool but i have a fringe so i can't even really do it like mm. i'm not I, I'm not at a place right now where I can show my forehead to the public. That's just my limitation and I'm living within it. Um, so why do I own those? That's the object exists to push your hair out of your face and I'm not comfortable doing that. So they're just in my house. Mm. It's also, it's been interesting being here because I left most of my life in Los Angeles and came here and I kept being like, I guess I don't need as much as I thought I did mm. because all of the shit that I consider to be very important material things is all in another country mm. and I don't miss it even a little bit. Yeah. And that's, that's been kind of messing with me lately. Like, cause I grew up, my bangs last year have a slew of headbands. Sure. Great. Slew. <laughs> um, from that period where I was like trying to figure it out and I'm like, yeah, I got to keep those cause I might want to wear those again. Yeah. I don't think I want to wear those again, but also then I'm just creating waste if I throw them out. Yes. Yeah. I can't win. But also throwing them out would be some sort of like, I don't know, re rejection of some, some sort of, beauty ideal that you might come back to you maybe know. i'll come back yeah. yeah yeah a version of myself that it looks good in it you yeah know what i mean that it will never exist and i'm like oh one day one day i'm, I'm gonna I get there 100 yeah. live in protection of and anticipation of a version of myself that has never existed it'll be just right <laughs> and, it, and i but i work much harder for that version of myself than i do for like the actual version of myself now like i think i'm and because I'm doing the easy things, like I'm going to stop talking about skincare. Skincare. <laughs> um, can you find out? I just found out about skincare. Guys. Um, wow, Glossier. I don't want to talk about it. Would love to be supported by them financially, but that I feel like buying that stuff is the like consumer equivalent of taking a picture of a celebrity to the hair salon mm. and expecting to look like the mm, celebrity yeah. when you get the haircut. Yeah. And they're like, honey, that's a wig. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I've actually done that exact thing and had that exact thing said to me. I <laughs> love that they said it's a wig, a wig though, rather yeah. than what they has always happened to me. And they go, Okay, and then they just like cut some bangs and like maybe some layers around my chin. Yeah, because what they're trying the to face. do, you gotta frame, gotta the face. frame that face. Can't um, be on its own. So this is what women want. Thank you so much for joining me, Monica Heisey and Emily Gordon. I'm going to do my radio voice because I'm a serious woman. Um, today we're looking at what women want is to write. I would love to hear from you both off the top of your head. What does it mean to you to think about writing within the feminist lens? And then we're just going to chat and then that, that will be it. Cool. This is a medium called podcast and it's pretty cool. I think you'd like it. Um, we just chat and we laugh and people listen. Well, yeah, I so know a few men who have those. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like friendship. It's like friendship. That you have to subscribe to. You have to subscribe to <laughs> and it's semi-performative okay, okay that's great that's so, great you are now you know where we are um so what I, what I was thinking about when I thought about feminist writing writing in a feminist way was just my overall thought was just like surely that's the one of the more clear-cut feminist things in this world creating on your own terms have I read the essay no do I know it exists a room of one's own yes <laughs> I knew that what Wolf was talking about was the need for a physical space to write but also a space within literary fiction to be considered a writer and um, 
but the the practical aspect of it has always been really interesting to me like the practical aspects of creating so many male writers of a very forgiving wife and how you know the woman is a muse or she's a caregiver but she's very rarely the creator so it does feel like an inherently feminist thing but then also as someone who works in an industry with writers and writes herself I'm also aware that as a woman in an industry that is still quite male dominated you're bumping up against very uh, unequivocal sort of sexism and racism not daily but not less than yearly (laughs) and so trying to have this thing where you're doing this absolutely punk rock feminist thing making money from writing being a creator but also every day trying to figure out what it means to be a female writer I'd love to know from you how you manage that Um, and also what it means to you to be a writer outside of being a female writer or a writer who may write female characters the joy of writing and what it means for you to write female characters and also maybe to see the world in a different way because you do write these are all the things I was thinking about Emily when you think when you when you saw (laughs) that I'd uh, asked you about your job a thing that you should probably ask about a thousand times what did you think um I do think I, I come from a very practical family, uh, like Southern family. So writing was not ever considered a career that one could have. My family, and I think it is very much from the women in my family. This is not a, every woman, but it's not every Southern woman, but definitely my family. It's your job is to stay out of the way as much as possible. Like a life well lived is a life where you kind of keep your head down, stay out of the way. Don't make any waves. Everything's cool. Just be easy, be easy. And I was a therapist before this, uh, and that was a lovely kind of career that gave me way more about tips for writing than any Mm. level of being a woman ever has, although, sure, mutually exclusive. But uh, I think now, as a writer, it is my job to – it is my job to make make a fuss. Mm. Uh, and I don't mean that like in a literal, I'm fucking disrupting. I mean that in, I literally have to make a fuss of, no, no, I think it should be this way. And I, I see the character this way. This is why I'm thinking of that. And I think it's taken me a bit to realize I get to be an expert in that too. Because I think for a while, because I came fr- into screenwriting, not having gone to school for it, mm. I was like, oh, these other people are experts. I'm going to let them tell me what to do. I'm going to let them kind of help me. And it's only been in the last couple of years that I've realized, oh, these are not my teachers. These aren't my bosses. These are my coworkers. Mm. I, and that's been a really big, that's been a really big thing for me to advocate for myself and for the characters I'm writing and for how I see a scene and realizing that these people have, don't know anything that they're doing any more than I do. Mm. Nobody has any idea what they're doing. So I think that's been kind of a freeing thing for me is, is realizing that is my job in this, in this, uh, Similar to how I did as a therapist where I had to stick up for my clients, I have to stick up for my own vision of things. I have to realize that my vision is an important way of doing things. Doesn't mean I don't take notes. Doesn't mean I don't listen to other people's ideas. Mm. On occasion, they're okay. (laughs) Uh, But I do have to like, I I get to stick up for that. And I I have to stick up for that. It's very interesting. I love the idea of coming to an idea of realizing that you can't do your job unless you do something that might be considered unlikable. I feel like... One of the ways I get my friends to have worth, like have self-worth or even think about having self-worth. My friends are fine. I should just say that now. (laughs) I can never be like, you deserve it. I have to be like, you have to have it to do a good job. It's very hard to make people understand that they should have self-worth just because they, they deserve it unequivocally. You have to understand it sometimes through... That's the only way I'm going to be able to do this. Yeah. And then you maybe come to a stage where you're like, also, I clearly deserve it. Yeah. The deserving, but that's not, to me, that isn't the part of it that is, the deserving part of it isn't the thing I should advocate for. Because in my head, and again, I think this might be with Southern more than anything. No, you don't deserve anything. Mm. Nobody does. You're, yeah. who, who do you think you are? You're getting too big for your britches. So it's more of what's the best thing to get this job done and do a good job. I also do the thing if I'm getting, if I'm going to throw a little, like, if I'm going to be difficult mm. in, a, in a meeting, if I've gotten five sets of notes from somehow three people, and you're like, how mm-hmm. did I get five sets? <laughs> I always preface it by going, and guess what? I'm about to be the difficult woman. Yes. And I kind of make a joke out of it Mm -hmm. because then I'm like, we all know this is ridiculous. No one gets to call me difficult for doing this. I get to do whatever I want. Yeah. And now you're going to listen to me say this. And I find that making that joke helps. Is that selling myself out? I don't know. Hmm. Let me know. Call in. What's the number? 1-800? My mobile number is. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's great, Emily. Thank you. Monica, when you were thinking about your career and how you write or just writing in general 
and what it might mean to be a feminist version of that. What did you think? Yeah, it's one of the questions that you asked was in the in the very thorough little email that you sent Thank you. beforehand was, do you ever get to be just a writer? And it was interesting just now hearing you say, you know, that um, it's inherently feminist to create on your own terms because really so much of being a, a professional writer and especially I think a professional female writer and especially in the early stages of my career it wasn't really on my own terms I was writing the things that I was assigned and the things that I was assigned tended to be really gendered I mean lots of people have written and talked about how especially when I was working in media the kinds of stories that women young women at the start of their careers are assigned Mm -hmm. or get commissioned when they pitch them are, you know, I wrote like seven sexting guides. Like whenever my (laughs) rent was due, I would pitch a sexting guide because I knew they would take it. Or if I wanted to write like a humiliating dating story, you know, it was like they were these really, really gendered female coded stories. And um, I didn't, it was, I've always felt a bit conflicted about it because I never really wanted to do serious writing I always wanted to joke around and I found that by being a little self-deprecating or going into territories like sex or relationships I could write the funny stuff that I was hoping to write for Mm. or write about um instead of having to do like serious journalism but then I have complicated feelings about that too because I don't think that it's I don't think that those are lesser areas I just think it's bizarre that those are the only areas that Mm. we kind of let young women cut their teeth and I feel like Someone I think about all the time is David Sedaris Mm -hmm. because he's a domestic essayist. He writes essays about rebuilding his lake house and fights with his boyfriend and what his sisters are like. And no one would ever put a high-heeled shoe on the cover of his fucking book. (laughs) Um, And, like, when I wrote my essay collection... They, I had to fight them to not include the word grown ass woman on mm. the cover. Wow! And it's pink, and they mine's sh- pink too. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I did yeah. not want that. Yeah, no. I. They showed me a proof that yeah. was red, and then they printed it pink. <laughs> I was like, and you know what? And then I again complicated feelings because. I was like, it just can't be pink. Mm. And I don't know why. Right? Do you know what I mean? Like, there's nothing wrong with a pink book. Again, there's nothing wrong with writing about relationships or (laughs) writing about the domestic sphere. I think it's just frustrating that you can only have a pink book and you can only sell it as this, like, ooh, 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 little Mm -hmm. girl wrote a book. Um, And David Sedaris gets a fucking skull smoking a cigarette. Yeah. Yeah. Like a Lucian Freud painting or something, isn't it? Yeah. It's so cool. But then the essays inside, if you just changed his gender, Mm. the whole thing would be different. Mm. And he gets to just be a wit and an observer of modern life and Mm. modern relationship mores. And women writers are always like neurotic women. And they always talk about like, you know, like she's a, she's an observer of the minute, tiny little moments Mm. of the everyday, these insignificant Mm. little moments she makes significant. And it's like, maybe they're just significant. Mm -hmm. This is why I cried so much watching little women. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So many people when they hear about writing just think it's such a foreign, impossible thing for them to do, which is interesting because it's something that most people do a version of every day. Yeah. But there's something about professionally writing, creating, owning it, like creating a new narrative that didn't exist before that feels so empowering and, uh, I don't know, so unique to whoever the person is creating. But in fact, as with most things the actuality of it which is probably what wolf was talking about because what she was interested in was like a desk (laughs) like give me a door with a lock (laughs) yeah Yeah. you know like the actual day-to-day of anything is is always going to be impeded or frustrated by the realities of the person doing it i read a thing about how women have to have an ego to do everything even if it would be useful for them to be able to come in with a bit of humility and say like i'd love to learn some more of this I'd love to know some details but in fact you have to come in with 110% confidence or you won't be let into the room is that something that you found as writers I think you do have to have confidence but I also think I was a little I think you have to have I think I was misunderstanding what an ego was Mm. and to me I always thought an ego was like I know exactly what I'm doing I'm the fucking best I'm gonna get in there I think I thought ego was this like internal I've got this I know exactly what I'm doing Mm. Ego can come from the outside in. You can be like, absolutely, I know what I'm doing. I got this. I'm And talk. And it turns out people will listen to you and you probably know what you are talking about, but it doesn't have to start on the inside. Mm. I think that's what I was misunderstanding for myself, at least for a while. Like the call can come from outside the house. <laughs> it doesn't have to be this like internal, 
unshakable, I know what I'm doing, because it turns out nobody knows what they're doing, especially when it comes to screenwriting. Everybody's just making stuff up mm-hmm. all the time. I mean, professionally making stuff up. That's <laughs> yeah, the other thing. Constantly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, yeah, that's what I've learned from collaborating with a lot of men is that whereas we think, oh, I'm going to wait until I have something good to say and then I'll or I have a good idea and then I'll talk. Mm-hmm. Men are just talking mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> They're And they're not. And again, this is all simplifications and all like boiling stuff down. Uh, but that's what I've observed being in rooms with with men and women uh, in L.A. Yeah. specifically. And so I've learned to just start talking. Mm. And it turns out you look just as confident from the outside. Mm. And that's what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, it, it feels weird. That that just a sort of basic, just I'm just going to talk when it feels like an appropriate time for me to talk. Just talk, just saying the damn words, just saying something is equated. That feels like super confidence. Yes, it does. Well, I feel like there must be, it must, there must be an insane confidence that comes from like acceptance of your own perspective as universal, right? There's this sense of the the white masculine story as like the universal perspective. Mm -hmm. I hadn't even realized, like, I feel like I saw... Little Women too recently. It's too <laughs> raw. But I hadn't even realized watching it, and I had the same exact experience watching Lady Bird. I just cried like the entire time mm. throughout. And I hadn't really realized, because there's lots of white women in movies, and I hadn't really realized how that specific perspective that I related to so much, I hadn't really seen before I saw Lady Bird and Little Women. And, and there are definitely movies that have presented it that I've, I've missed out on, like, I don't know, Ghost World or something. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love Ghost World. <laughs> but... Um, I know it's like a classic, classic moody white woman film that mm, I haven't seen, mm. and I, I really should. And of course, Thora would play me in a movie. Of course. 100%. Yeah. 1,000%. Yeah. I, I don't know where she is now, so I, I hope she's available. She has quit acting, but we can get her back. Yes, I'm going to. We can get her back. <laughs> <Thank> you, <Emily. laughs> but I, I, I do, I feel like, you know, if you're questioning whether your perspective is worthwhile, and obviously mm. the more marginalized identities you have overlapping over each other, the more you are forced to ask yourself this question and the harder it becomes to fight against it and have the confidence. It lets you butt in in the conversation or not even think of it as butting in. Just mm-hmm. think about it as contributing, mm-hmm. for yeah. God's sake. For God's yeah. sake. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just enjoying using the word butt in as if it's like some sort of like scientific. Virginia Woolf said, of course, you must butt in <laughs> in the room of your own. Um, I think that was Cheryl Sandberg that was her book. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's her like sequel to Lean In. Butt in. Um, we we have women have or any marginalized person whose story is not told or whose experience is not the sort of norm has a thought process, has that second, has that millisecond of thought process before they speak, before they mm-hmm. do anything. Mm-hmm. And in that sort of moment of doubt or confusion or hesitation, however subconscious it is, it, that's where it lies. That's where it creeps and in, yeah. yeah. That's why I feel like people, um, white men in particular, but white women as well, mm. um, anyone with privilege has a hard time, I think, identifying it because you just sit in... in privilege like it's a warm bath Mm -hmm. you don't notice that you're in it I think a lot of the time like I had a a colleague on a sketch show that I worked on and he this was his first gig on the show and I'd been working in in tv comedy for years and two weeks into the room maybe the first week he like stopped me on the way out and was like just so you know you're doing great Mm. oh god and I was like thanks man you too Mm. but I think he genuinely thought he was doing a nice thing yeah you know and he, no, I felt totally disrespected in that moment. Like my years of experience meant nothing to this much younger man mm, mm. who was much less experienced. Mm. But I don't think he would A, remember that moment or B, understand it even if I brought it up. And I think he'd be mortified to know that, that I hated that. Yeah. <laughs> but I like the idea of him being mortified. Yeah, mm. true. I, it's fun to think about. I'm thinking about it right now. It feels great. Maybe I'll call him. <laughs> we, we kept talking about when it comes to like especially romantic comedies, which I am not a fan of, despite the fact that I've, I've written one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. I, I hope that part of why it, it, I, I hate them. I mostly hate them. And I was thinking about how everything I know about how to be a desirable, cool, like interesting woman comes from that media that I've consumed comes from Mm. what desirable, cool women do, how they're supposed to act. And all of that, pretty much all of them have been written by men. Mm. And so it's impossible to even, we kept talking about this while we were writing, uh, while we were writing the big set, because we kept talking about like, what does it mean to mean that like, (laughs) 
what does it mean to have it be an actual female point of view on a romantic comedy? Because my brain is addled with all of the things that I've learned mm. from other romantic comedies of like, I need to be like approachable and cool, but I need to have one flaw, but only the one flaw and it can only come up at the right time. And mm. all this, all this stuff we kept, we had a conversation. There's a part in our movie that, uh, Emily, the character, Emily, who is not me, but is me. Um, after she has sex with the character, Kumail <laughs> is trying to get dressed um, after they have sex and she's trying to like hide herself while she's getting dressed. And I got into an argument with several men. I will not name their names. All wonderful men. I had great partners mm-hmm. who were like, I don't believe that a woman who looks like that would mm, want to oh hide God. herself while getting dressed. And then it led to this like, and why do you think that? Because you've only seen women do the very yeah. elaborate thing of getting dressed and like putting on the guy's shirt and one boob is hanging mm. out. You've only seen that in movies that are mm. written by men who want to see naked women because yeah. naked women are hot. <laughs> yeah. That's not what this is. This is like a different kind of thing. And my version of this is I don't care if we were just raw dogging. I'm going to get dressed a little shy. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. get dressed a little shy because it's not the same thing. And the, I, the very, very basic idea that we, everything we've learned about how post-coitus looks in a movie mm. comes from movies that were written by men. For the most part, women have written amazing ones too. And men have written amazing ones. And really, really well-observed women are in rom-coms like written by men but it is just this thing of like me having to go through and untangle what have i learned from these movies what have i gotten from this media and who was it aimed for it never has been aimed to me mm. this um, is why i didn't know that you have to pee after sex mm. exactly i got a kidney infection in university <laughs> yeah but that's not a thing that men know about no only knowing that as well was a thing that I got really obsessed with it was like someone had told me that and I was like cool like that's the one <laughs> I'm gonna spread this I'm gonna around pee. yeah it's like, <laughs> I gotta pee but I would like I'd like run out of the room I'd be like it's pee time <laughs> I gotta pee right now and if I couldn't pee I'd be like oh, I guess I die this way <laughs> I, well, you might. She had to go to the... I had to go to the hospital. Yes. And then I, I went home on like during like homecoming weekend because I had this horrible kidney infection. But I still... No one told me at the hospital that it was a sex-related no, thing either. Yeah. But my family knew because <laughs> I had just gotten my first boyfriend in first year <laughs> university. We were having sex like 12 times a day and I came home like with a kidney infection. They were like, yeah, you did. <laughs> yeah, you did. Okay. So you didn't even know enough to call it something else no <laughs> i'm just proudly telling everyone i was doing it i don't know what much. happened maybe i wasn't drinking enough water <laughs> oh really you think that was it <laughs> but that's that's i remember watching some really classic american sitcom that was brought to the uk about 10 years after it aired in america it was on a cable channel that doesn't exist anymore called trouble I miss it every day mm-hmm. of course we had hang time of course we had american high an american high school show that did not exist outside of Europe for sure because everyone was like kind of American but they all played basketball in a really weird way and I bet their shoes were way too nice I remember watching these shows and learning that you wipe back to front because one of the mothers was like weirdly shouted to her child as she ran from the room wipe back to front which was like a, a throwaway joke and I was like Okay, Nobody? I'm obsessed Told me that. with the concept wipe back to front because every time... Sorry, front to back. Right. Yes, yeah, I'm like, I'm sorry. No, I'm no. obsessed with I'm issues so sorry. Front. I'm so sorry. I don't want to impugn... That's how you get really bad things happening to you. <laughs> I don't want to impugn this TV show 100% front, front, to, front back. to back. Yeah. <clears throat> Wait, did you not know before? V to P, not the other way around. I don't think... I don't remember being really told. About it. Yeah, I don't think I did it wrong. Knew not to do it. Yeah, I don't think I was doing way. it wrong necessarily. I don't think I was conscious of how I was doing it. It was more that I was like, "Oh, there's a rule." Yeah, <laughs> I didn't know. But I'm obsessed with any time that I get like any kind of gynecological problem. If you have to go to the pharmacy, particularly with Thresh, my very close personal friend. <laughs> um, Every time, every single time that I go, every pharmacist asks if I'm wiping back to front. <laughs> and I'm like a 31-year-old woman. That's so funny. They're like, they're like, or like, they they have all these questions like, I wrote a sketch about this for Baroness von Sketch Show because I just feel like every single time I go to the pharmacy, they're like, do you know how to take mm. care of your own vagina? Mm. Do I'm you? I'm loving also, imagining your face as they say that to you. It, some women, some people are not taught anything. Some no, people's parents are like terrified to discuss mm, it. Fair what enough. If it's a, however, I also picture them having like a sad little checklist that for yes. every <laughs> prescription of a certain type, they're like, did you ask the question? Yeah. Does she wipe me back to <laughs> But 
Yeah. Wow. And but also imagine like we live in a world where it's like there's certain things that just like are not culturally talked about. Like yeah. I can't imagine that you're a young man who doesn't know much about wanking that doesn't come from TV. That's mm. right. Like, we all remember American Pie. <laughs> you know the feature film dedicated to wanking that I a loved of, as a kid. A lot of boys fucked pies. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Yeah. yeah I think a lot of boys have fucked food. Even though the point of that cats. film was... Don't, don't do, do it. that. Don't do yeah. it. I also, and I do think, I, I also, I picture it's, I think it's part of the writer's job to give little nuggets of information like that. Anytime I hear something like that in a script, in a movie, I'm always like, oh, someone had a weird experience yeah. and was yes. like, I'm going to put this in yeah. something so that I can teach the children. Because, Shrill did that. Yeah. With uh, the, the, the plan B pill doesn't work if you're over like yes, 170 right. pounds, yeah, that's I right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is information Oof. people need to know. Yeah, yeah, I could have used that several yeah. years ago. <laughs> but, but also even things like uh, the way that people do stand-up now, people often say stand-up has become something... There's also conversations around, does stand-up need to be so worthy? Like, has stand-up become too informative, educational? Like, obviously, in part, people are just reacting to the madness of the world and they're trying to make sense of it. So they'll read articles, so they'll mm-hmm. talk to their learned friends and then they'll relay that information. But... I think, especially when I hear other women doing stand-up, like, it's often not them being like, did you know that in 1991, blah, 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 very much my style of comedy. <laughs> but it's more just when they, like, share a cool, like, a, a, a sort of tip or a trick that they've learned, like, how to deal with cat callers or something. Yeah. You know, it is part of their everyday life. It is an observation. It is funny. But it's also just, like, very tangible information. For example, my version of that is... Did you know you can change your YouTube settings really easily? So the ad that comes up on your YouTube, if you just right click it, there's like a little thing you can say depersonalize. So it will no longer give you like very targeted, frankly, pregnancy test ads. Mm. It will instead give you just like will writing ads. I changed my age on Facebook for this. I was getting a lot of ads for like wedding harpists. That's amazing. And stuff. Wow. I respect that. What did did you change your age to? Like 88 years old. And now it's like retirement stuff mm-hmm. like vacation communities nice, nice. yeah it's very like gentle cruises mm. it's a good way to fuck the system yeah without really having to having do to anything. do very much very yeah. much again my style of feminism <laughs> um but we're still talking about representation in a roundabout way and talking about how we write our life experiences into writing into our writing but also how empowering it can feel like with shrill for example I didn't expect to be as affected as I was by seeing someone like A.D. Bryant just living her life. It's explicitly about being fat. So it's not just like, I'm happy and nothing in my life is bad because I'm confident and I'm respectful to my elders. You know, it's not fitting in as a way Mm -hmm. of of thriving. It's like I'm surviving by tackling the thing that you think should ruin me is actually just part of my life and didn't expect to be as affected by it as I was. And, and, and one thing as well about 
the Virginia Woolf quote, I think it was Alice Walker who did a critique of it being like, you wanted a room of your own, but lots of like women of color, especially black women in America, wanted like to own their own body. Yeah. Like, mm. you know, the, the, the limitation of some of our feminist critique is often about like, I finally see myself in this like highly educated white lady who, you know, is like learning to love herself. Whereas in fact, often what feminism, where it fails is when it becomes white feminism, where it only tackles like very privileged things. Do you find that when you're writing, do you feel more of a pressure as an intelligent feminist woman to tackle big issues and, and sort of bring to light inequality? Is that something that is a good thing that drives you? Does it drive you at all? Is that part of your process? I think if you set, if for me personally, if I set out to de- deliver a message to the world, mm. I feel like people can smell that coming a mile away. Especially if you're in the entertainment business, people can smell that a mile away and they don't like it. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to eat that shit. Uh, people don't like medicine. They yeah. don't want to be told to take their medicine. Um, I think it's more revolutionary the way that Trill did to kind of portray people existing without putting the pressure of, and also you have to be this and you have to be Mm. this and you have to be this. And, um, and doing that as authentically as possible, uh, is kind of the, the best way to do it. We, there's a, we have a, uh, I'm a producer on a show that's coming out, uh, soon on Apple called little America. That's just stories of immigrants that Mm. come to the U S and they're all, uh, stories that are based on reality. And then we've kind of dramatized them. And each story has its own writer and director that is, uh, for the most part, as much as we could from the same area that the immigrant came from. And it, we had to fight a little bit. And I'm not all over the place. Everybody, everybody, we had to fight a bit to be like, we got to really show that the hardships of coming. Mm. But that's, I don't want to see misery porn. Nobody, mm. I, I'm tired of seeing stories of, I'm I'm tired of seeing stories of people who are marginalized getting beaten down. And that's how I get to learn my lesson. Mm about what intersectionality is and what uh, inclusivity is. Um, I want to see stories of people having a good time, having little tiny stories, having things that feel insignificant perhaps to other people, little stories. I want to see the big ones too. I want to see all of them. I I just think uh, I'm tired of seeing, I'm tired of seeing movies uh, where it's just, that are just about slavery over Mm. and over again that are just rooted in the pain that I don't, I want to see movies that are rooted in more than just the pain of, of people who are marginalized. So I think, um, yeah, I think that's really important that like if you put the politics of like and they've been through a lot of shit, absolutely true. But if you put it on that, then I feel like it's still that's all, the only sense of representation is like suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that bums me out. And that's the same as like, you know, when when I was starting my writing career and only really being mm. told like, but have you been sexually assaulted? Can Ooh. we get something in that mm, sort mm. of area? It is still like, if you're only letting people tell their, the stories of the worst things that have ever happened to them, mm. you're not granting them of the re- their reality, which is that they have a full life that has joy in it and embarrassment and shame and pain and, and, you know, close family ties or not. You know, um, and that everyone's got a different combination of all of those things. And you might find yourself in those emotions with someone that is nothing like you. Yeah. That mm. on the outset is nothing like you. I think that the more like specific you can get, the more universal the story mm-hmm. ends up being. And so to, yeah, to just do like, you know, a very special episode is much less effective at actually building like an equal or contributing to because um, this is not the thing that's going to do it in the yeah. end, but it's it's helping or could help. Um, is just showing that everyone does have these these similar core experiences. Yeah. Um, whether they look differently or not, and clearly we do because everyone can see them has learned to see themselves in people who don't look like them. You know, we do it the other way, constantly. Thinkingly, so why can't it happen the other way? Mm-hmm. Um, with Baroness von Sketch Show, which you were mm-hmm. talking about, a show that you write on that I adore. Have you seen? I have not. Oh, Emily, you will love. Okay. Um, I won't say it's it. Canadian. It's hard to get a hold of. <laughs> there are clips on YouTube, and our old friend, the Dark Web, will help you. <laughs> That's what I call cool. VPNs. I try, <laughs> is that right? I try to stay away from the Dark Web. <laughs> oh no, you've got to get it. the best comedy is on the Dark Web. <laughs> Buy yourself a kidney and then check out a couple clips. Yeah. <laughs> Feminist sketch show. Baroness one sketch show. Um, it's fantastic. Well, I'll let you talk about it, Monica, but one of the sketches that like I remember people lost their shit over was specifically like the over 40 section in the gym, which was like <laughs> the space where you get to be free. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, 
when I wrote that, I was like 24 or something. And yeah. when I, and I had them as like age 60 and my coworkers were like all, I think around or about to turn 40. And they were like, it happens way sooner than that. Oh. You just have no concept. Like it's so soon. Mm-hmm. And it's been, I've been working on that show now, like pretty much every summer, um, for the last five years. And it is crazy how, how much of the stuff that they, that seemed so distant to me when I was 24. Now that I'm 31, um, it's all hap- kind of happening already. <laughs> um, in this way, that's been really lovely. And I felt like I was so lucky for that to be my first job because I'd wanted a mentor so badly. Mm. They taught me so much and they empowered me to figure out what to do myself. Um, and then they also told me, about all of the stuff that was going to go down bodily, and it really has. It really, really has. <laughs> but but it, in a joyful way, the shocked faces of the 21-year-old in the background, and everyone says, vagina out, <laughs> labia on show. Yeah. Mary Walsh, who's a Canadian comedian and writer, did a speech recently at the Canadian Screen Awards about uh, how she had turned 60, And she said that getting into her older age was like one of the great privileges of her life because she stopped being an object of someone else's Mm. desire or or trying to be um, and kind of got to become the subject of her own story instead. Mm. And I think that's something that I'm also kind of striving to remember Mm. when I'm slathering my many serums on in the (laughs) evening. (laughs) Uh, Something that I wonder... Do you think you see the world in a different way? Or I want to say clearer, but maybe that's not quite right. Because you're looking out for these things or you're ready to write about inconsistencies or, you know, the, the funny observations of life sort of motivate you. Does that mean, though, when you're in the real world, like if you're in the supermarket and someone's um, doing something patronizing or something confusing, are you, do you have more clarity, do you think, because of your profession? I'd love to have more clarity. Yeah, I feel like <laughs> I feel like there's that thing. It must someone said it. It wasn't me. So this is not an original thought of mine. But someone said somewhere at some point <laughs> that um, if you can't explain something simply in a few sentences, you don't understand it. Mm. And I feel so. I feel like any writing that I would do is probably because I'm trying to convey it simply. I am trying to understand it, but I don't necessarily. It's sometimes there are things I that I've been trying to write about for years that I can't do properly. And it's because I don't either. I lack the experience or the intelligence or the whatever to fully understand it in a way that you can convey it simply. Mm. Um, and if it's not conveyed simply, then the audience doesn't, I saw Phoebe Waller bridge talk recently and she said, the only things you can't do with your audience to your audience are bore them or confuse them. Mm. And I feel like if you're confusing them, then it's because you yourself are still confused. Hmm. I think that's very true because I think uh, I feel like all of my training as a therapist has really been the bigger thing for me to kind of be helpful for me as a writer and as an observer of the world because you were taught as a therapist to observe the person you're with and to observe what they're saying, how that's matching up with how they're acting, all of that good stuff. But I think... um, I think if we would always say as therapists, you, you can't take your client any further than then you're able to go yourself emotionally. Mm. So if you say have an eating disorder and you are working with people with eating disorders, by the way, I've seen that happen. It's horrifying. Mm. You can't really help a person with an eating disorder if you haven't fully kind of gotten processed your own feelings about it. And I think that's true for writing. I think if you're not ready to write about something that's intense, I find that people go through experiences and then they're like, well, I'm just going to write a a one man show about it. And you're like, bitch, you're crying right now. (laughs) You're not ready for this. And that's okay. My God, don't be, Mm. you don't need to be ready for this. Like it, we, I think you have to kind of be an observer of yourself as much as you are the world. And I think that my therapy training has been the most useful thing for me as a writer of just kind of understanding how people act and how people are desperately trying to present themselves one way and versus how they are. And I think, um, I think that's been really useful to me. I think I don't think that's an inherently female or male or how, whatever trait. I just think, mm. but I do think it. I think it could serve for people. I, I think writers, most writers, could serve for being to to be a little more observant of people around mm. them. I do think. I just feel like I'll be in a writer's room sometimes, and like one person in the room is just like fucking going on and on about how cool they are and how and everybody's annoyed. Everybody's mm. clearly annoyed. <laughs> at them and and they don't know it and i'm like mm-hmm. how can you be this person who's like 
a sharp observer of the human condition. Mm. And you don't see that you're annoying everyone so yeah. much right now. And we want you to leave. <laughs> and I, I just think in general, like being able to kind of stop and like put yourself out of a situation and observe it, I think is, is useful for a billion reasons for the like processing of your own stuff. Mm. I think that stuff's really useful. So I don't know. And you can get it by not getting a degree in therapy. A lot of this is me just being like, yep, that's right. I got a full degree in something and I don't use it. So trying to justify it as much as I can to myself, my parents, everyone involved. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's the most useful. You, you've both written books. Um, one, I can't believe it's not better, Monica. And Super You, Release Your Inner Superhero. Different vibes. <laughs> Different vibes, but actually uh, very similar covers. Because I've seen them both. <laughs> Pink. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering when you were writing your books and when you were writing your screenplays and you were writing in writers' rooms, do you feel like they're different? Like I don't know, are there different agendas? How do you feel like they play out? How do they compare? Oh, writing a book is a very solitary experience. It's very lonely. Mm, I yeah. found that to be a very lonely experience, and uh, so that whereas a, a writers' room. I'd say 90% of it is just trying to crack up the other people in the room. Mm. It's, and I don't know how it works at other places, but it is, I find it to be highly inefficient for the most part. <laughs> so I'm like, God, we're all just swinging our dicks around. Like I get it. Everybody's very funny. Can we get to work? Yeah. How many more YouTube videos do we need to watch before we can get to work? <laughs> um, and I love all that shit too. But um, it is very much like group therapy in that you kind of, there is a dynamic of like who is considered funny, who's considered um who's considered worthy of being heard from and who's kind of being talked over. Um, and every room is a little different, but mm. I find it very different in writing a book because that's just you and the editor. At least, I mean, that was my experience. Yeah, I I was so excited when I started working in TV writing rooms because I'd been working in media and, and writing the book by myself for like a couple years before that. And, I, and then after like a couple, I was really lucky and I got a, a bunch of work quite quickly, but then felt kind of socially exhausted after, oh, mm. you know, like a three month writing room or something. It's like, I had no idea sitting around a table could be so tiring. <laughs> Most exhausting thing. And it feels so ridiculous. Both my sisters are nurses. Mm. You know what I mean? They'll be like on their feet for a 12 hour shift, putting <laughs> people's catheters in and stuff. And they'll come home and be like, oh, I'm so tired. Like, I'll be like, I'm tired too. <laughs> I had been on all day. Yeah, <laughs> it's, I, this, the social, the amount of, of work involved. I mean, I suppose you could call it emotional labor that everyone's doing. Um, it is really, or can be really exhausting. Um, but I, I love having a balance of the two things. Like, I think they inform each other in a really nice way because then you're excited to sit alone with your thoughts mm. at the end of it. But then after you've been alone with your thoughts too much and none of your clothes are clean and you want to have a reason to brush your hair, mm. um, it's lovely to sit in a writer's room with your peers and feel like you have a community mm -hmm. um, that's not just people tweeting at you mm -hmm. um, from their houses where they're not brushing their hair. <laughs> so I think it's lovely to do like I think both kinds of writing inform the other and they're they're both really can be really lovely in different ways. And I think having the two different modes helps you appreciate what's nice about it. So that when you are on the 14th YouTube video of the day, mm. you can, you can remember that it's all right. <laughs> yeah. I find and feature writing. I, I find is a nice compromise because I'm mostly alone. And then I check in with people like every month or mm. so and like have like a big sit down with a bunch of people every month or so. And I, I, to me, that's like a nice balance of like, I get to like, be on my own and then I, I have like a community I can check in with mm. um yeah because it's exhausting yeah, yeah. It's so well, exhausting uh, but this is the thing I find about people who are in any sort of any sort of gig economy any sort of freelance situation is that everyone in an office job is like coming up against exactly the same things but when you're in an office job there's so much more like decorum and systems to disguise it mm -hmm. when you're freelance it's harder to do because you just inevitably like it just becomes much more like text, less subtext when you're like not getting a job for a certain reason. Is there anything that you've had to learn because of the slightly maybe more um, explicit uh, pushback you get in a freelance capacity that you could share? Like something that I've really enjoyed doing and like more traditional, like working in an office pretty much every day, but then also doing some performing is like, you can practice being heard, you know, mm -hmm. if you don't get heard mm -hmm. the first time, that's okay. <laughs> Try it again. 
you know, the dream is to get an amplified mic. Sure. But that you can't have that in every situation. <laughs> but, you know, even just like learning what it feels like to be heard, yeah. you can then understand what it's like when you're not being listened to. That's very good advice. I think that's, yeah, that's a very good point. I, I think too, like, um, just kind of realizing like you, you aren't only going to get one shot at this. Mm. And I know they, they say you only get one shot at this, but I, I think that's not necessarily true. And I think at an office job, you can kind of keep your head down and be like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to stick my neck out too much. Yeah. Mm. Stick your neck out. Like mm. what is the worst that could happen? Mm. You get fired. Okay. That is the worst. That's not great, <laughs> but probably not going to happen. I, I think that like, it's okay to take chances. Uh, it's okay to kind of stick your neck out is a, is a thing I, it would have been nice for me to take back into the jobs I had before I was a writer when I was a therapist and I was mm. like trying to advocate for my clients over other people's clients. Like I, they could have used that. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Okay, maybe I have one. Okay. Um, something that I've, as I've been uh, working longer, something that I feel like is really important that people don't always remember to do um, for various different reasons is to remember remember what it was like when you were starting. Mm. So if you have a team that's of mixed ability or mixed experience levels, you know, there was a point at one point when you were the least experienced person in the room Mm -hmm. and whether or not you got what you needed or hoped for as the least experienced person, you can now as a more experienced person, you can help provide it um, or check in with that, this new person about what they need. And that's a, you know, a way to feel like you're doing something useful. Yeah. And don't Um, be shitty to interns. Yeah. Never be shitty to interns. No. You were an intern. People were shitty to you. You hated them. Mm. Don't be shitty to interns. And also, often they're going to end up in jobs, development jobs above you. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Happens all the time. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to be sitting across from them, begging them to make your movie about a talking dog. No, no, I'm super (laughs) nice to you. No, don't you remember that one time? (laughs) (laughs) I feel like we've come right back around to just like the everyday human interactions that sort of make up any job you know like there's always the creativity that we're talking about like the the brilliance the moment where you do get to do your own thing but then coming back to like the sort of quotidian like where do I write will people leave me alone when I write and like will I be when I put it out there how will I be judged um and I feel like increasingly part of the reason it's easy to have this conversation is that the, the reason this podcast can even exist is because um, I learned how to wipe my butt 20 years ago today. No, no, no. It's because like it is already growing and changing the way that people are represented. And it's no longer, this is not like the first of these conversations. Um, I'd love to know, you know, more women and non-binary people are being at like the core of storytelling and their stories are being told. But are there, like you were talking about little women, what kind of stories are you reading now? Like who are you reading? Which writers do you love? And who would you recommend? This is my wrap-up question as we end on a positive note. I have to look up the book I'm currently reading on my phone, if that's okay. Of course. Okay. Monica, are you reading anyone at the moment that... I'm rereading uh, Sheila Hetty's Motherhood mm. right now, which is one of the most, like impactful I think books for me that I've I've read in really? a really long time yeah wow. I just I was really interested in first of all it it led to me going to a doctor and getting diagnosed with PMDD which oh, is wow. basically like nuclear grade PMS mm. it dealt with um the pressures I guess yeah the the feeling of pressure and I'm not necessarily feeling pressure to have a child which is a central concern of the book but pressure to uh, bow to any kind of conventional life and whether it's possible to be a creative person and want to engage with some of those more conventional things like um, getting married or having a child or, you know, owning a home, haha. <laughs> but uh, whatever those, those convention, you know, just the, the pros and cons of conventionality, I guess. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I found it very, very interesting to see someone feeling conflicted but also kind of ambivalent about these things that are supposed to be these really to me the the character's main main thing was that she kind of didn't feel one way or the other about this thing you're supposed to really know Mm. yes or no so to see female ambivalence in that way I appreciated her ambivalence quite a bit I think I (laughs) I I like that quite a bit because I I feel that way I am currently reading um girl woman other oh Bernadine uh, Evaristo yes yeah so good had to share the booker with um margaret atwood right i've said that in such a leading way she had to share with fantastic <laughs> author no, no no i mean i don't know i mean obviously I, did margaret atwood need another award listen i've got a canadian passport i love margaret atwood okay i'll say it but yeah i do it did feel like it was you know she's this amazing 
black British writer and then the idea that to get to the book of shortlist and then to win but then still to have to share it with another woman and a white woman at that is I just is what it is it's such a and I'm still reading it I think it's so beautiful so sharply observed I just I fell in love with it and I every single character I'm in love with and I'm in love with how it's a series of short stories Mm. but all of the Every short stories are connected. Characters are connected. Will show up in other short oh, stories. It's a love, actually. Mm. It's a love, actually. <laughs> Slightly different. Um, <laughs> I just saw that for the first time. It's great. It's How a good you? movie. It's got so many problems, but for the first time seeing yeah. it, I was like. Wow, that actually hangs together quite well. Every like, time I see it, I can't believe how early they bring up 9 <laughs> 11. What amazing thing? I texted that to Camille almost immediately. I was like, what? Why is 9 11 in the opening yeah, thing? I know. Felt, felt really like current. At I the think time, that was right? at the time that was all we were talking about. Sure. Yeah. They added it. They were like, we got to address it's it. It's not Christmas. Got to get it in. I love the idea that you came to London for a certain period of time and like you're heading off soon and you're like, got to watch Love Actually before I go. <laughs> It's a really good example of an ensemble movie. Ensemble movies are very tough to do. I think That's it true. does it quite, quite well. Yes. Um, Though I did see the, this is not my hot take, someone else's hot take that I'm repurposing, that um, three of the relationships are about uh, like a senior male oh, having sure. a relationship oh, with a young great. woman. There's some real fucked up shit in that yeah. movie. No one yeah. is denying that. Also yeah. the really fat woman in it, of oh, course. Oh, Marcy, oh, I forgot Marcy about that. McCutcheon. Yes, yeah. Martine McCutcheon. I can't be like, this is, we're, are they fucking are they fucking with me? Like what? Yeah. But also, I kept waiting for the big ass, which was not that big, to save the day yeah. in some way. Like, I know. Like, surely they can't keep talking about this so much. It doesn't much. matter. It's like Chekhov's big ass. Like, they have to use it at some point in the thing. And they just don't. It it's just doesn't. But also, as, as like, you know, the British cultural expert in the room, I should say that, like, it's not even like Martine McCutcheon was in known as being like a larger lady in the press that <laughs> was not like it sense. wasn't like famous larger lady Martine McCutcheon she was like you know uh, a well respected piece of hot totty as we say <laughs> in this country and the the idea that they I felt really like I'm going to use this word in the bad way gaslit by that because I was like yeah. no 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 we all like, find that lady see attractive big ass Hugh Grant <laughs> But it also made me feel like maybe in the script, it felt like a casting thing, perhaps. Like in the mm. script, maybe she was written to be sure. a thicker milkshake. And then perhaps <laughs> like when they came to casting, they're like, well, we're certainly not going to do that. Right? But right. also to me, it was like missing the entire, the real truth of it, which was like, mm. it's the British class system is mm. what we're talking about yeah. here, which was like, that's interesting. Like that's really what it is. And then it's like, but her bum, am I right? Yeah. <laughs> it mm. is bonkers. I anyway. have to say that like, it's these conversations that I so often have with my friends that where you just think how are we still having these conversations and then but it's always in the it's like it's in the action right it's like in the scripts that get made it's in the tv shows that actually come through and thank you so much both of you <laughs> for fighting the good fight uh, no that's too sincere an ending for me i've i've now yeah fuck do yeah, something sorry. else um, okay Fuck you both. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I've, I love this so much. You're both so smart and uh, I do – oh, I have one thing. Do follow uh, Bernadine Everisto on Instagram. Oh, She's okay. very good. This is what I do now. People are like, um, I've read this wonderful book and I'm like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. can I suggest a meme account on Instagram? <laughs> um, I think my book is um, The Topeka School, not Ooh. written by a woman, Ben Lerner, but it's kind of based on his real upbringing about his woman as an academic, his woman, his mother, his woman, an academic who in real life wrote this um, psychology book that was really big. She was on Oprah and people used to call her and uh but it was in the day of the landline so it was like trolls but they didn't have the internet so they had to they'd call the house so funny because she didn't want to be unlisted she thought it was like um a mark of courage but also just like every day will continue to stay in the book and so uh, that's the phone book for listeners under the age of whatever um but she would get these calls and she had this tip and this trick which was she would say found ways to do this oh this is not Forever. new, is yeah, what I'm trying yeah. to say. Like, a woman having an Surely opinion... Surely has always existed. Yeah, yeah, in different forms. And um, I'm sure if we translate some of the ancient runes, <laughs> it will be like, shut up, big ass. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that ass. Um, she had a thing where these callers would call, and she would say, I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. The line's not very good. So she could perfectly hear them. They were saying things like... Your hu- I bet your husband hates you or whatever. How does your husband feel? But she would be like, oh, I'm so sorry. The line's not very good. Would you say that again? And then the guy would have to be like, um, <clears throat> how does your husband feel? And like just the act of just saying it again, of being called to repeat, to have any sort of like say it louder 
really like diffuse a lot of the tension but also just to read about the idea that like we always feel like this stuff is really new but of course it's been going on forever Ever. and i think that would be the positive way in which we end this thing <laughs> and then not a damn beat yeah <laughs> well basically like don't take it personal it's not you it's society you can do it in a writing room too if someone does a massage has a misogynist joke or pitch you can be like what's funny about it mm. oh that's such a great thing to do mm. explain to me why that's why funny. Is that funny okay so this is that this is the point of the thing like we write to understand but we live to ask people but why did you just say that? <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you so much, Monica and Emily. Um, Thanks for having me. Thank you. And see you later. Goodbye. Thank you so much for listening. If you're still listening to the little credits, wow, that's so nice. And you're exactly my kind of person. I'm a completist. What can I say? If you listened before, you'll know that the executive producer was Zachary Annette, Emma Caution essentially did all the work she recorded she mixed i edited which maybe offers at points i must give credit to the artisans by Jamenda publishing for the very catchy tune all the way through and thank you all so much for listening goodbye love you mean it hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.